This interview series is brought to you by the IIEA as part of our Global Europe project. Hello, my name is Leanne Digny and I'm a researcher at the Institute of International and European Affairs, the IIEA here in Dublin. I am delighted to be hosting an interview today as part of the IIEA's Global Europe project, supported by the Department of Foreign Affairs, which aims to address, analyse and communicate to the wider public the EU's role in the world and Ireland's role in the multilateral order. I'm very pleased to be joined today by UN Special Rapporteur on the situation of human rights defenders, Ms Mary Lawler, who has kindly agreed to share her insights into the role and her reflections on the major challenges faced by human rights defenders today. So Mary, welcome and thank you very much for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. So most people in Ireland especially will know you as the founder of Frontline Defenders, which is an international uh, human rights organisation which you founded here in Dublin just over 21 years ago or 20 years ago in, in 2001, which um, has the specific aim of protecting human rights defenders that are at risk. So what was it like transitioning from that role to your current position as a UN Special Rapporteur? Well, uh, in setting up an organisation, obviously, uh, it had to be developed and we developed it uh, to meet the needs expressed by human rights defenders, which were quite broad. So I moved from an organisation that was, you know, uh, giving grants for security, training in security and digital security, measuring risk. Uh, advocacy at the European and uh, UN level, uh, the Dublin platform every two years for over 100 human rights defenders, uh, the annual frontline award, uh, which it's so just to give you an idea of the scope to doing purely advocacy, mm -hmm. which is what I am doing now. Um, Along with that, because when I was fortunate enough to uh, be successful in in this position, um, uh, you know, it's quite complicated. You, you do a round of interviews with ambassadors from all the different regions, and then the president of the council consults with um, the regional groupings, and eventually somebody gets chosen. But I was told early on that because, and usually it's an academic and not an and not an activist. Uh, I was told early on because I was known as an activist, it would be very important for me to show my independence. So I decided from the word go that everyone uh, should know that I was independent. And that meant, and the way I, I demonstrated it was I speak out against the UN, I speak out against uh, states and I speak, uh, I don't join anything that NGOs uh, ask me to join because I felt it was important to show that, you know, I was in part, I wasn't in anyone's pocket. And so, uh, and and that, that was tricky to get right in the beginning, the balance, because obviously, I, I would know an awful lot of human rights defenders around the world and they would know me. And, you know, they assumed that I would automatically take what they said as gospel, which, of course, I can't because we have to do our own checks and all of that. But also, I can't join petitions. 
politicians. I can't join campaigns. I mean, I could if I wanted, mm -hmm. uh, but I don't join petitions and campaigns and uh, sign joint letters. I focus all my attention on listening to them, uh, bringing their concerns to the international community and lobbying the oppressive governments. Okay, so you, you've really highlighted the idea there that your role is really focused on advocacy. Could you maybe just briefly explain a little bit more what the specific roles and responsibilities um, are as part of your role? Yeah. Well, the UN Special Rapporteur on Human Rights Defenders has a limited mandate, which comprises of uh, a report uh, every year to the UN Human Rights Council and a report to the UN General Assembly on, this, on some aspect of the situation of human rights defenders. It means following the trends of pattern, uh, trends of attacks against human rights defenders, wherever they are globally around the world, and, uh, and keeping in touch with human rights defenders in order to be able to follow these uh, trends. Uh, it also means doing two country visits a year, official country visits a year. And then finally, um, it, it's, it's, it's people, the way I approach the mandate is people-centred. I have spoken to over 1,200 human rights defenders since I took up the mandate, either online or in, well, mainly online and at meetings in person, um, in small groups of twos and threes or half a dozen at a time. So I have a good a good sense of um, generally a good sense I should say of, of, of what what are happening what is happening in each uh, of the regions. For example, in places like the in in places like uh, Central Asia and Asia, you can have very often very long term imprisonment. Whereas, uh, and also in um, in the Middle East. Whereas Latin America, you have a lot of killings of human rights defenders. So it's it's trying to just um, keep up with what's happening to them all over the world. And I, the way I do that is by talking all the time to them. So that's really, and then because, sorry, I should just say this. So I write these formal communications. They're called communications. They're really formal letters mm -hmm. to the government on a case or a number of people who have been targeted. I um, I explain the circumstances and I ask questions of them, and they're supposed to respond in within sixty days. Sometimes they respond, sometimes they don't. Sometimes the responses bear no resemblance to the questions I've asked them. Sometimes they do. And because the UN isn't really uh, designed for um, uh, urgent, urgent kind of situations, I use Twitter a lot. That's very interesting. Um, you, you've mentioned just that the element of having to conduct these kind of fact-finding country visit missions. <laughs> Do you often face challenges in securing these state visits? Well, about uh, country visits, is there's a list of countries that have theoretically standing invitations and uh, they have agreed to accept visits by uh, special rapporteurs uh, but even when they have standing invitations there's a lot of logistics and, and organization involved you have to find a time that suits them and suits uh, suits you 
And then, then there are countries that you have to request a visit uh, from uh, that haven't standing invitation and they may or may not agree. And then there are some countries that you wouldn't even ask because you know they won't agree. So for me, last year, it went very smoothly. I went to Greece looking at the situation of um, uh, defenders of migrants, refugees and asylum seekers particularly and Tajikistan, and that all went uh, swimmingly. This year, I'm going to Cameroon and to Algeria. Cameroon, uh, I'm still waiting on an actual date. Uh, Algeria has confirmed for the end of the year. So, but it's it's a process, you know, so that's the way it works. Okay, brilliant. Um, I just wondered if you could maybe let us know how the priorities from your previous terms have been achieved and what are your priorities that you're focusing at the moment for your current term? Well, you know, the thing about human rights defenders is that the most, I concentrate on the most serious um, violations to human rights defenders. So when I started, and these priorities will remain through this term as well, killings of human rights defenders. Over 400 human rights defenders are killed every year for their peaceful work on behalf of others. Uh, uh, I mentioned long-term imprisonment of human rights defenders. There's a, there's, a, there's a friend of mine in the United Arab Emirates who was supposed to be released after 12 years last August, and they've just brought new charge. They wouldn't release him, and they brought new charges against him. Uh, in China, there's one poor person that has been there in total 33 years of his life. Uh, and uh, and, it, and the trouble is they fade, you know, they're, they're, they fade from the eye as they fade from the side. You know, they, they people forget about them. And they're, they're, in the end, it's only their families if their families don't break up over it or, you know, friends that continue to try and raise their cases. So... Uh, they're forgotten about women human rights defenders because women everywhere are targeted because of who they are as well as what they do. LGBT defenders defending uh, LGBT rights in countries where it's uh, hostile. Um, defenders working on the rights of people with disabilities and those, as I said, working on refugees, migrants and asylum seekers, they are all priorities for me and anti-corruption defenders and also um, uh, uh, business and human rights, defenders working on uh, environment, uh, indigenous and land rights. Now, I've done reports because the way the mandate works is you try and draw attention to each of, well, I try and draw attention to the priorities I've done. So I've done reports on killings. I've done, I, I did one on killings and one on anti-corruption defenders. Uh, I did those two for subs, uh, two consecutive Human Rights Council um, meetings and for a for uh, the General Assembly, I did um, I did uh, long term imprisonment and killing. So, uh, so I've I've uh, and then next uh, my next report to the General Assembly will be on women human rights defenders, peace and security. Uh, and then I'll do something on the SDGs. I haven't quite decided what I'll do next year for March yet. But one of the things that I'm doing this year is concentrating also on children 
and young people who are human rights defenders because they're going to be the people who will carry the human rights movement into the next 25 years. The Declaration on Human Rights Defenders is 25 years old this year. So we're having a meeting in Vienna with uh, 40 young people under 32, which is the UN definition of being young, and uh, uh, 10 of whom are children. Wow. Under 18. Yeah. So I'm very excited about that. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. Um, You've given us some examples there that paint quite a bleak, uh, though I'm sure a realistic picture. Um, I'm just wondering, do you think or how do you think the situation of human rights defenders has changed since the mandate was established in 2000? <laughs> well, I started this work in the 70s. And to be honest, you see so many of the same issues. Um taking place in different contexts in different countries, you know, countries go up and down. And anyway, so since it started, since the mandate started, you see, I think there was a lot of hope uh, around the end of the 80s and the 90s because of the end of apartheid, because of the end of the Cold War, uh, the breakup of the Soviet Union and the wave of democracies going over Latin America. So people were hopeful, you know, uh, and then after 13 years uh, negotiation, the UN Declaration on Human Rights Defenders was adopted in 1998. Uh, so there was a there, there was a there was a recognition that human rights defenders needed to be supported and protected. But sadly, you know, since then, particularly the last 10 to 15 years, we've seen new wave of illiberalism, uh, which, which I suppose calls into question rights that were already assumed to have been put to bed, you know, and agreed. Uh, and uh, one of the things that really, I think, um, uh, made this so much, so very difficult was the, the wave of um, uh, the gift, I suppose, of the 9-11 uh, counter-terrorism measures to be used in, uh, against human rights defenders, because the last thing government wants are human rights defenders who are highlighting abuses of power or injustice. And it seems to me that they just loved to be able to get them under this vague counter-terrorism legislation and portray them as terrorists or as uh, uh, somehow, you know, uh, security uh, um, um, subversives. And, and we've seen that all over the world. And that they're the ones you see that are put away for very long terms. That's, that's always in the context of some for, form of uh, branding them uh, as a as a terrorist or a subversive or something like that in the in you know counter security measures, so that has that has really been a, a huge um, huge uh, difficulty. The other thing is you know they started bringing in all this legislation, uh, all of them like not all not all states but a lot of states, hostile states or oppressive states have brought in copy and paste legislation targeting human rights defenders, everything from registering to re-registering to closing them down 138,000 websites for example in Russia at the moment have been closed down 
um, uh, to uh, uh, branding people foreign agents, which has a particular meaning in some countries. Um, and 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 uh, and they are, all these autocrats learn from each other. And then we have like the US and the UK, for example, with shocking, uh, shocking uh, records of cozying up to abhorrent regimes like Saudi and like Yemen, for example. Um, but on the other hand, you have more and more human rights defenders everywhere and more and more NGOs trying to trying to work, I suppose, to promote and protect human rights. I mean, I was reading something, some study lately that says there are now 10 million NGOs worldwide. Wow. Yeah. So, so moving out of the national sphere, what do you think are the main gaps in international and regional protection for human rights defenders? What are the main in in the international sphere? Well, the the real gap is that there's no accountability for perpetrators to be brought to justice. And you know, if you look at any of the reports, any of the my previous mandates, any of the recommendations, we all put in about you know a, a recommendation about accountability and bringing per perpetrators to justice, and it just isn't happening. And I think there should be, similar to the Council of Europe's uh, European Court of uh, Human Rights, uh, which is legally binding, I think there should be a legally binding international human rights uh, court where defenders can seek accountability for violations against them and where judgments against perpetrators can be enforced. Um, because that would certainly help. Um, uh, the, the other gap is, you know, at the end of the day, it's states that are responsible for protecting human rights. And um, it it is noticeable to me that a lot of defenders, a lot of just ordinary people, public, uh, interested public, um, they, they talk about, for example, in my mandate, well, why aren't you doing more? Why isn't the UN doing more? But like for for and they equate you with the UN, but for 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 me it's important. It's 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 uh, you just have to keep remembering that at the end of the day, you know, this is all a political process. Uh, the member states of the UN decide what it is they will do and what they won't do. And every state is driven by its political and strategic interests. And there is no such thing as a good government in my view, because every government has its inadequacies. So when you put it in the broad framework like that, you can see that political will is a, a single big, um, single biggest I suppose, gap in the protection of human rights defenders. If they were serious, they would be not only bringing in laws and policies, but they would be implementing them in a way that allowed human rights defenders to continue to do their legitimate, peaceful work for the rights of other people. Yeah, I mean, certainly, I mean, governments have a, have a massive role to play here and the UN as well. But moving away from them, to what degree do you think business or, or do corporate leaders have a role here? Aha. Well, business and human rights is one of my priorities because 
most of the killings in Latin America take place in the context of a business and human rights. Defenders who are working on land, environment, climate, um, uh, indigenous rights, that kind of stuff. And they are the ones who are who are um, being uh, killed. Now, the EU, as you know, is bringing in this directive um, uh, next. Well, it will probably be the end of next year or early 2024. 20, uh, 20, uh, and um, it just passed through the jury committee. Um, I don't know how you pronounce it, but I think that's how you pronounce it. And um, and we have been lobbying um, to get human rights defenders into it, because for us, you know, particularly in light of uh, the priorities in terms of human rights defenders being in the context of business and human rights, um, it's very clear that uh, it's such a murky, murky kind of uh, uh, area that you really need clarity on what the responsibility of business is and you need clarity in the due diligence directive that um, human rights defenders should be stakeholders and should be consulted with uh, uh, you know when it comes to uh, a business uh, carrying out its activities to ensure that they don't do any harm um, we're quite happy with the way things are going, but there are still shortcomings. And uh, uh, but I think it will hopefully make a change. Now, one thing Ireland can do is uh, the, the the national action plan on business and human rights, which Ireland has. Um, uh, the last one was up in 2020 uh, and it's a bit late, as you can tell. Um, but it started late to be a fair it was supposed to i think start in 20 it was three year plan it was supposed to be um 17 to 20 but it was it didn't start in 17 but anyway we haven't had one for about a year and a half and there's been a bit of a discussion that's a polite word uh, about responsibility uh, between enterprise and um foreign affairs um and it is really important that both are fifty percent responsible each because it is a joint thing. It's 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 you know you can't have foreign affairs leading on something that enterprise won't imp uh, you know implement. Uh, and likewise, if enterprise comes up with something that isn't you know uh, uh, fit for purpose. Uh, then you can't, you know, in line with the values of the white paper, you have to, you have to take that into account. But I am hopeful now that there is movement, um, and uh, I really think that the national action plan this year will hopefully be started. I'm, well, I'm putting my nose out here. I'll have to push harder, but uh, I really want to see due diligence in it, and I want to see human rights defenders, which is a key area of Irish foreign policy, uh, included as a stakeholder in the National Action Plan. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we've seen that through Ireland's Security Council term, you know, the voice that they they gave to human rights defenders and civil society at the table. Um, so I suppose maybe just one last question about the next step. What do you think is the, the most important next step to address the needs and rights of human rights defenders? You've spoken a little bit about the Irish context, but maybe just a bit broader than that. Well, 
it's not rocket science. I mean, you know, people go on about next steps and next this and next that. The reality is all the solutions are there. Now, they're in black and white. A, there has to be political will. B, there has to be policies, laws, which are implemented to protect human rights defenders. And states have to stop smearing human rights defenders in press, in the press and on social media and uh, start showing that they're giving them visible support and recognizing them as uh, key players in the promotion and protection of human rights. I mean, it's, it's, you know, this is the thing that gets me, you know, every interactive dialogue at the Human Rights Council and the General Assembly, I'm asked, what more should we be doing or how can we better support or something? And I feel like screaming because all they have to do is take human rights defenders seriously, promote respect for them and recognize them and give them legitimacy in their in their countries and then uh, bring in the, as I said, the policies and the laws that are needed if they are needed and then implement them and make sure that perpetrators are brought to justice and investigate attacks. Like, you know, it's 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 no different than any other kind of, um, and stop, as I said, treating them as, uh, as uh, earlier on as, as subversives or, uh, you know, anti-development. You often hear that in, in the case of uh, uh, human rights defenders working in the context of business and human rights, they're smeared as being anti-development. They're not anti-development. They're anti-displacement of communities poisoning of water where where their means of surviving because they eat the fish from the water for example is 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 taken away uh, or um their, their their trees are cut down and you know they, they, just the normal stuff that they need as communities to survive is completely taken away from them i mean you know at the end of the day it is States that are responsible for human rights defenders' protection. And in the context of business and, and human rights, you have somebody like Canada, a state which has uh, at-risk guidelines um, uh, for to protect human rights defenders. And this is just an example. I could give you many examples. They also have guidance for business. And yet, what can Canadian extractive mining companies are doing to communities and uh, human rights defenders? I mean, I think the only, it wasn't now in this case, an, uh, it wasn't a, um, an extractive uh, and it wasn't Canada, but the only time I have seen somebody brought to justice for the murder of a human rights defender in the context of business and human rights was Bertha Caceres in Honduras, where in the end, eight members of the company were all um, prosecuted and imprisoned. They had deliberately uh, put in place a plan to kill her. Well, that's really quite astounding. Um to say that you've only had one example of accountability and like I said you, you've, you've given us a picture there of the, the major challenges over the last couple of decades I wondered if I could just ask you what have you found on a more personal level to be the most difficult and then the most rewarding aspects of this role 
Well, I mean, of course, the most rewarding aspect is when you get, when people are released. Like today we heard of uh, a release of three people we'd taken up in Guinea and we heard of the release of uh, 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 an LGBT, uh, sorry, um, uh, an improvement in the situation of an LGBT, it, uh, the charges were dropped in Poland and so you always get enough you only need enough to keep hope alive I mean obviously the bad things are I mean I had a group of Afghan women human rights defenders in front of me online just after the Taliban and they were just crying you know and what could I say to them that would give them any hope nothing and they just cried and cried. Now I eventually, you know, managed to to help find somewhere for them to go, but that um, but but that isn't the solution either because they were there working on women's rights in in um, in in Afghanistan, and I remember being on an online meeting early on in Colombia, and I had three indigenous uh, human rights defenders who were trying to. Uh, work on uh, their own uh, land rights and they it was really it's uh, it's it's an organization called La Guardia and they believe you know their spiritual culture is they believe in 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 their land and the sacredness of their land and how it has to be preserved for future generation never more relevant than now and what they did what they do well is they have they have these wooden sticks and they 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 walk around the boundaries of their land with their wooden sticks, which are kind of sacred wooden sticks for them, and they invoke the name of their ancestors for protection. And uh, it's uh, uh, while I was on to those three people that day, they heard while I was on the call that one of their. Uh, uh, young human rights defenders he was only 14 was murdered and and they're the days that it's hard well thank you very much for for sharing those um examples with us and as you said we have to to keep hope alive and you're certainly an example of how we can do that so thank you very much for joining us today and on behalf of the iia i would just like to commend you on all of the incredible work that you and your office are doing um, if you'd like to hear or learn more about the Global Europe Project or listen back to other podcasts in the Global Europe podcast series, you can check out our website or social media. This interview series is brought to you by the IIEA as part of our Global Europe Project.